welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here with episode 52 of our Penguin Little Black Classics review collection. This is the endeavor wherein we attempt to review all 80 of the slim Little Black Classics that Penguin put into their world literature collection. And again, it's episode 52. Exciting times here for us. Amanda. Amanda is joining us on the other end. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, no Ryan today. He is on strict parental duties dealing with uh, some teething sleep deprivation issues, which um, sounds exhausting to me. Is it exhausting as reading Plato? I don't know. I guess we'll find out today in this episode <laughs> because today we are doing and we are covering Socrates defense or is, should it be Socrates's? I was thinking about this before we started. Uh, I think it depends on whether you're going with the the P- Princeton review or not. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's noteworthy. We have to get our manuals and guidebooks in order here. It's crucial. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go with just Socrates' defense, though it is possessive. Yeah. Anyway, who who can really know this? English is such an amorphous and knowing language. Um, <laughs> But we're here with a copy, again, by Plato. It's a Socrates defense, which is essentially a long speech by Socrates, the philosopher figure that Plato so admired and kind of was a student of. And yeah, this is the the final words that he gave before an Athenian court before he was sentenced to death. That's not much of a spoiler. It's pretty much addressed directly in this collection or in this speech set. And that's what we'll be reviewing today. If you're interested at all in philosophy, Greek history, we will be delving into those topics, and if you're not, I would say listen along anyway, especially I have I get to this kind of in the review later, but if you have zero exposure to philosophy, this one might actually be doubly important for you and in a way, and we'll cover why that might be later. Um, another quick announcement up the top. Last week, we took a break from the Penguin Little Black Classics to dive into current events and do a book club on um, a Ta-Nehisi Coates book, um, Between the World and Me. We wanted to purposely cover some African-American literature and highlight some contemporary issues, dive into that conversation and contribute. And I think Amanda and I have agreed to revisiting that body of work, not by coast, but by just general, the African-American experience through literature. And I think we're going to try and do a monthly book club focused on that. Um, We've committed to, I believe, our first book, Amanda. You feel strongly about this? Yeah, I do. Should I announce this now then? (laughs) You sure can. Okay, cool. So next month, uh, unsure when the episode will come out, but we are doing a book club, so a deep dive analysis episode on Colson Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad, which from my understanding, and I know very little other than that it reviewed really well and was in the Oprah book club or you know had kind of accolades flying around it. But I think it's a reimagining almost in a fantastical realism kind of way where the Underground Railroad of the slave era in the United States is like literal, like it's an imagining if it was like a literal train that ran underground. I, I think that's th- kind of what the story is about, um, though that I could be completely misrepresenting it. That's just what I remember hearing. I'm excited, though, because I've read a couple of Colson Whitehead's novels before, and he's kind of a kind of a intel- very intellectual, very literary writer. But I'm curious to see this one seems to have broken kind of mainstream. And so I'm curious to see what the I don't know what the contents of it are. And yeah, I don't know if you have any exposure to his work. I can't remember now. I don't. Yeah, exciting then. So we'll be covering that in a book club next week, or not next week, next month. And I believe going ahead, we will again continue to do our small part and I think try and contribute at least a book club a month focusing on that type of literature and that sort of history. I know we've discussed, you and I have, about doing maybe some Toni Morrison, maybe some poetry. You found some anthologies that seemed promising. Mm -hmm. So keep an eye on the feed for that. We'll announce it as usual and we'll post 
on Instagram and things like that and do our normal kind of social announcements. So just wanted to say that up top. Um, but this week we are returning to our normal Penguin Review, uh, Little Black Classics review set. Let's dive in, shall we? We'll start our normal review way with a one-sentence simile review. Amanda, do you want to start us off this week? What is your simile for Socrates' defense? Sure. Uh, reading this is like watching a spirited leader giving a rallying speech before battle in a movie. Mm. So I was thinking of like Braveheart or Elizabeth II, like the... So mm-hmm. there's a slow buildup where everybody like in, in the audience is just kind of like exhausted and they're just demoralized or whatever. It's, it's tough. You have a tough audience. And then over the course of uh, the speech or in, in this case, also the speech, <laughs> you become yeah, right. more energized and you get more into it. And then by the end, you're like, yeah. So yeah. that's how I felt reading it is like at the beginning, I was just kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, I was like, yeah, that's a good point in your face. Melitus. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah, I think. And Socrates sort of sets himself up rhetorically in these ways where it, he is like high fiving himself at times, it feels like. And yeah. almost literally like <laughs> coming close to just like explicitly applauding himself with the point he's made or the sort of logical loop that he's closed off or something. Mm-hmm. I. I don't know. I put down something kind of similar, but with a slight cut back against. So let's, I think we should compare contrast. I went maybe too literal on this. I know similes are supposed to be more fun and creative, but I, I, reading it was like being back in a philosophy class, honestly. And Mm -hmm. and you have the kind of like spirited student. Maybe there's like one person in the class. I had to take three um, philosophy classes. It was mandatory at the college I attended, um, like across the curriculum for everybody. Um, and so you ended up in a lot of philosophy classes where there were very few philosophy students. You know, it was just like everybody else studying other stuff being in those man- mandatorily. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you'd get into one where one person does kind of end up dominating the conversation. I think that's for any humanities class uh, in college that I feel like that's a common experience. And I think it, it can be so mixed, right? Sometimes it's worth it. You kind of have to let people explore ideas like that. You have to let them vent. You have to let them, I don't know, almost, you know, th- by thinking it and speaking it out loud, um, they can hone and sharpen ideas and stuff. And then, of course, there are other times where it's just frustrating. And I think there were times in here when I'd forgotten how kind of, I don't know, self-pleased or kind of self-congratulatory Socrates can seem just in, in the rhetorical construction too. And who knows if that was Plato's own interpretation or if, you know, Socrates, the person was actually like that. It's I'll leave that to the historians or classicists to the, to the side or whatever. Right. But I did, I, did you feel roused then only towards the end? Cause I, I don't know. There were two, there were some lulls here where I think if this guy was in front of me doing this, it's like, I'm not ready to go to war, you know, metaphorically. For him. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it was like towards the the middle and the end mm-hmm. that yes, I was kind of like, oh, okay, like I I like his play with the logic and I like how he's kind of uh he's he is defending himself and he's like fighting for his life, right? And you kind of right, are right. cheering him on like, yeah, you got this, man. So I, that's how I felt when I was reading, especially when he was um uh interrogating the the guy who brought the charges against him Melitus. I was just yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And I did feel I, you make a great point where he, he does seem self-congratulatory and he, he keeps going back to the thought that, uh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not wise. 
I'm just way wiser than all these other dudes. <laughs> he even right, says, right. The he floor even says, is very low. Yeah. He even says at one point that he's a, uh, he is superior to most humans and he's backed up. According to him, he's backed up by the Oracle of Delphi. Was it mm-hmm, one of the yeah. oracles? Yeah. So, so yeah. Which apparently <laughs> uh, according to the Wikipedia research I did on the trial um, before this recording, uh, that was kind of the spark that finally led to his downfall and the accusation and then trial conviction mm-hmm. was that, yeah, the because the Oracle said that it put him on a quest to try and prove the Oracle wrong. You know, he that's mm-hmm. why he did his investigations in that way. He why he prodded at the intellectuals and wise people of Athens so much. It was kind of right. like he was putting that prophecy to to a test of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's. I don't know. This gets caught up. And again, I don't want to do much um, historical work here because that's definitely not our our pod's expertise. I just wonder, like, how much of this is a Plato making a character and how much of this was a person speaking, you know, actually? It's interesting, right? That's like yeah. it's this fascinating historical thing. I don't know if there's a, we'll ever have total clarity on for obvious reasons. Um, no one was tape recording this and we can't just like go to the film or whatever. Right. And so, yeah, it's it's curious to just a curious thought experiment to wonder how much of this is a person that Plato had constru- had to construct and how much of it was a man who lived and actually had to ar- argue this. Did you find any relevant connections to 2020? We like to jump into some and make some early connections for the listeners out there. Was, was there any relevant pressing issue that stood out? Yeah, so I, I saw it as... Um kind of what we see and what we have seen in, in recent history and perhaps what we'll um, see in different ways um, with what's going on now, as far as uh, the fear from those in power, specifically government, right? These are politicians who um, Socrates is defending himself against. Uh, but mm-hmm. also just thinking of um, what the government would call subversive uh, discussions or things that would s- challenge the 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 status quo, anything like that, where the government kind of goes in and tries to clean up. And so, specifically, mm-hmm. yeah. um, because we had done Coates recently, it immediately brought to mind. Coates mentioned it was um, the program CoIntelPro, uh, which mm-hmm. is how I think it's pronounced, but it's the counterintelligence program. Um, that was uh, run by the FBI and they, you know, would attack mostly, uh, left idealists and stuff like that. Um, they did at one point target the KKK in like the sixties. Um, but that was like the only like other (laughs) like non-liberal, um, Mm -hmm. thing that I read about, uh, that they had attacked personally. But, um, yeah, so that's what brought when I was reading this and the reason that Socrates is having to defend himself is because he is challenging the, the status quo of Athens at that time, which he's like challenging people. Like you don't have to worry about money. You need to be a good person. You should be focusing on questioning. Don't just accept. Right. And of course that's going to be a challenge to uh, those in power because they don't want the masses to question. They want the masses to just obey. Yeah. It's, it's very rare for a, a, um, leaders of a state or regime or whatever to to want uprisings. That's like a pretty. That's not. Um, that's not it, like intrinsically. It's not in the interest of the state to kind of want that. Right. So yeah, it's it is his role to be kind of a pro- provocateur. Uh, the 
platonic way of putting it is to call him a gadfly, which he calls him a gadfly a couple times in this. They make the horse analogy right. about how he kind of spurs the horse, you know, Athens being the horse in the analogy to, mm-hmm. to action. Yeah, no, I think that's a tremendous connection. It's just kind of he he plays the role of a, you know, extremist provocateur. I don't know if we can slap a political ideological leaning onto him exactly. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think he lines up with a, a party, if we want to put it that way, in right. 2020 at all. It's more just he questions everything at all times from, yep. from anyone. I guess in that way, he'd be kind of your classic internet troll, which... I think is fitting in both the complimentary and a very insulting way that I just said it. I think he kind of <laughs> comes, he kind of earns both in a way. Like it's, I don't know. I feel like whenever you're debating someone in a, in a heart felt way and they believe nothing, it's like, what am I, why am I doing this then? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. When you, when you take up that new position of supposed neutrality and you're just like being, you know, I guess devil's advocate is another way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point you can't help but ask like, what, what is the point of that then? Just to get, just to get shouted down over and over again. I, I don't know. Anyway, I think that's a great connection. Mine was simpler. And I think in a way, then it kind of is a compliment to the philosophy. You know, philosophy is meant to be just the study of, of basic questions and simple, you know, the most simple ethical, moral, and like intellectual dilemmas. I think this does raise kind of a bone deep question of just how should you be spending your life at all, knowing that, you know, as far as our knowledge goes, for sure, we only get one chance at living. So mm-hmm. How should you even bother to dedicate your time? He definitely addresses that directly on multiple occasions about, you know, that he didn't spend his time doing things society deemed worthy or, you know, acceptable, and that he kind of just ventured around asking questions that, you know, they didn't deem him very valuable or some people didn't. And right. I think Plato's answer, his answer would be, kind of a simple another kind of simple connection that hasn't gone away in a few thousand years um, which is just kind of like live honorably and seek truth and try and find out what is true in life and what is you know noise and distraction you know make mm-hmm. sure you never stop inquiring these are all like relevant and kind of simplistic in a way but again maybe that makes them more truthful or, or more poignant in a way where it's then that again I think is a compliment to the philosophy where you end up coming back to those really simple points those really simple, revelations in a in a sense and mm-hmm. yeah i think i think that connection i mean it's it's a simple one again it's not anything particular to 2020 but it it points to a sort of i don't know i don't love the term universality that can be that's tough but almost so i would say especially in um academic life i think mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and it and it this your point also connects to i think the coach reading where his whole point was always ask questions always inquire always yeah. try to seek truth mm-hmm. yeah yeah the, the only the only damning thing would be not like seeking things out not exactly. thinking it through or not bothering to do the research or follow the thought or track it down or anything like that mm-hmm. yeah i think yeah and I, again as a work of philosophy maybe that's probably the highest compliment i could give it in, in a sense it did feel i don't know like timeless in a way uh th- those questions did or those answers Let's jump into some stylistic elements. Let's get into some analysis and rhetoric. This is kind of the meat of the podcast here where we dig into the actual words on the page. Um, did you have a quote that you wanted to start us off with today? I see you pulled. Well, actually, no, I think your explanations make them look longer than they are. I was like, I think you pulled some really long ones. But I think it's just your, your notes. Never mind. I was, yeah, I, I did pull some long ones too, but yeah. Okay. No, and that's great. I was like, man, this is this like five paragraphs or what, what are we... Uh, I, I love it. I, that's, I mean, I couldn't be more thrilled. That's kind of the whole deal here, people. If you're not interested in listening to Amanda about to read five paragraphs of Plato, then I don't know what you're listening to the wrong, uh, 
this is not the show for you, uh, perhaps. We, we, <laughs> we <suspect>. apologize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but wh- why don't you pick one to start us with then? Sure. So I, I had just mentioned like um, that that both my idea of the connection and your idea of the connection relates to the reading that we did with Coates. And so I actually pulled a yeah. quote that specifically made me think of Coates as I was reading it. Um, and it was, um, this fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom and not real wisdom being the parents of knowing the unknown. Is there not here conceit of knowledge, which is a disgraceful sort of ignorance? And this is the point in which, as I think, I am superior to men in general, and in which I might perhaps fancy myself wiser than other men, that whereas I know but little of the world below, I do not suppose that I know. But I do know that injustice and disobedience to a better, whether God or man, is evil and dishonorable, and I will never fear or avoid a possible good rather than a certain evil. Mm. Um, so there are several things here where this is uh, where I was saying that, yeah, he kind of sounds um, arrogant in some ways because he says that, yeah, I am superior to men in general because I don't pretend to knowledge that I don't have, which is what he's accusing right. his accusers of. Um, and what made me think of Coates with this particular quote was, again, he's like encouraging people to question. And he's also encouraging people to not just like live dishonorably and not to just accept things as they are, right? He's saying you need to, mm-hmm. you need to be aware and that ignorance and, and your, the ignorance of your ignorance is the real issue. So you should always be seeking knowledge and not thinking that you know everything you should always question so that is what in particular made me think of Coates and I was like oh I think maybe he was perhaps influenced by Socrates perhaps without even knowing Mm -hmm. but I'm sure he does like of course he studied philosophy so yeah yeah and I think the way we if we talk about like a grand uh, quote-unquote like western tradition of thought or of academia or something like that and we won't get into the, I don't know, the complications of those ideas here. But if you think of that as a tradition or you accept it as one, then yeah, Socrates is almost kind of an origins point in a lot of ways. And then there are many ways in which this text kind of reveals some of those, I don't know, rhetorical things, um, mm-hmm. ways of organizing a text, ways of organizing an argument that just, it's so clear that we have not left them behind, that it's, yeah. things haven't changed that dramatically since this was spoken like, what, 2,500 years ago or something? Yeah. Um, which just feels wild to say. I would say I pulled a quote then because I think yours, the one you pulled, is the perfect, I don't know, summation of his method, I guess, of his like style of inquiry and his philosophy. Mine then is his, I think I picked a quote that's kind of like, the summary of his um, morals, I guess I would mm-hmm. say, or like his view of human life. On page 31, he says, what I do as I move around among you is just this. I try and persuade you, whether younger or, or, or older, to give less priority and devote less zeal to the care of your bodies or of your money than to the care of your soul and trying to make it as good as it can be. And I, that's just such a succinct way that he puts it. I think it's maybe the most succinct thing he says in the in the text or that I found to be. Yeah. And that's kind of his the best defense he gives for himself, which is I'm just trying to make you better. And granted, his methods of doing it might make him, you know, like a gadfly or something. Mm-hmm. But I think that's probably the the most humble he sounds and the most straightforward, which um, works well when he when he approaches the argument that way. He doesn't always sound that way, I think. And it, like we mentioned 
I think he can come off as kind of like self-assured, arrogant to, to a harmful degree. Mm-hmm. But I think he, at the core of his belief system is just that, that he's just trying to make their lives more thoughtful overall, mm-hmm. which maybe, yeah, it's maybe an oversimplification, but if it is one, I thought it worked for me, especially given that, yeah, there's like other complex rhetorical things at play here and construction of arguments, you know, it's complicated stuff. Um, but that I think came across really well in comparison, I suppose. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I actually also underlined that when I was reading and for mm. the same reasons, I was like, oh, okay, well, he's the rest of his uh, speech, even though he says he's he's doing it like off the cuff, right? And yeah, there's still right. a lot of uh, great interplays where he's uh, building up on on different motifs and stuff like that throughout his, his mm-hmm. speech. But this one is just completely stripped of that. And you get the the very clear point, which is, and it seems like the, the most honest that he is in the speech, which is right. just to say, I'm doing it uh, to improve humanity, essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I really like that quote. Yeah, I think it's a great one. Let me throw out another one then that I think it came across to me as um, maybe not as complimentary or I'm not going to be as complimentary of it, but I do want to point out a couple of uh, rhetorical kind of flourishes and techniques he has. There's one, I think it was from page like 15 or something where he's questioning and he says, do you suppose you're prosecuting Anaraxagoras, my dear Melitus? Are you so contemptuous of these people here, like the court and the jury and think them so illiterate as to not know that these assertions are busting out of Anaxagoras's books. (laughs) And it's such a funny rhetorical trick to like, to basically alert people that they're being insulted by another person who has not actually insulted them. Like he calls them, it's like his own (laughs) attack, but he puts it under the, the, um, label of Melitus's attack. You know, it's like he calls them illiterate, but gets to do it through the other guy's lens or whatever. Yeah. And I just reading that, I was just like, man, that is like an insult style that has been around now for 2,500 years. And we have not escaped that little, little trick or little twist. (laughs) There was also one on page 41 that I'm not going to read, but it's kind of that classic, like where you put an insult out there or you suggest an idea by just saying the idea. It's like you, you say you're not going to do something, but by saying that you've already done it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like people who swap swear words for words that sound the same. It's like, Mm -hmm. come on, man. Like that's we, if we already knew the word, then you purposefully telling us you're going to say something else. You also just said the word because right. we it's knew. The same because you told, it's, yeah, it's like I, I. That brings me back to school and being a teacher when students would say like, you know, they'd say like, "Oh, fudge you," and they're like, "Ooh, I said fudge," and it's like, really? Like that? You you get what you did because of the construction of what you said and the emphasis and the tone of it, like. You, you just said the word. I get that the word, you, you changed it, but anyone who had not pre-knowledge of the actual swear word, fuck, would know that what you just said. Like so Exactly. It's, it, and he does that with his kids where he's like, you know, I've got three kids. I didn't bring them here. Those beautiful, lovely, like, I've got a family. I didn't bring... It's like, but you just, <laughs> by alerting them to your family, you just did the same rhetorical thing. Exactly. And so it's, uh, yeah, there were, and I don't think... I don't know. I don't remember noticing things like that when I studied Plato before. And I'm sure that in other texts, these things come up too. And and in some way, it's like, you know, the fact that these strategies have held up for so long speaks to their power. But in another time, mm-hmm. I found them kind of almost like corny in a, in a way or like ineffective yeah. or something. It was just kind of like, this seems below the stakes of this argument, like that he's you know, maybe desperate even. I don't know if you mm-hmm. felt that way when you were reading him. Yeah, I thought that it was pretty funny, especially with the kids one. 
<laughs> I was just like, really? Mm-hmm. Really, Socrates? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And he wouldn't deign to bring them in here. And then he like <laughs> yeah. describes them for a couple yeah. sentences. You know, the, the two of them are very, very young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their eyes. You should see how big their eyes are, how innocent they look. But I, but I would never, I wouldn't even think it uh, to yeah. bring them in. I it would be dare. a dishonor to me and to you and to mm-hmm. everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh God. Yeah. I thought that was really hilarious that he, <laughs> that he attempted that. And it felt so familiar to, I don't know, just current. This not maybe it brings it back to another connection of just how, and th- maybe this again feels like a school connection to me, but it's kind of the the same thing of we'd be at parent teacher conferences and the parents would, it's like they didn't want to bring up their the personal struggles that were maybe affecting the kid's performance, but then they would do it anyway. You know, just by even mentioning that, you'd be like, oh, okay, you know, and then that it does elicit. I mean, I guess again, it hasn't gone away in twenty five hundred years because there are certain things in the human condition that just elicit sympathy, and and that's and he he attempted it for sure. Again, I don't know if it worked on me, a person who's not at his trial, and about two thousand years later or whatever. I think it was just kind of came off as again, a little bit corny or something, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's funny to see those things. It feels very, I don't know if it feels very fresh or something. It's weird to see rhetoric that holds up so well after so long. Yeah. Uh, he does use, and what I found funny and what actually you, you pointed out to me too, um, you pointed out earlier that it's Plato's retelling of Socrates's defense. Right. Right. Um, so the, the question is, is like, how truthful is it? How much of it is embellished? How much of it is just, you know, misremembering certain things. So with, mm-hmm. with Socrates saying that like apologies, I'm just going to use like the way that I normally talk, but it seems almost very structured the way that he speaks, especially when you start noticing yeah. uh, certain like repeating metaphors and stuff like that. So uh, I, I, I was, I was thinking about that too. And just thinking, man, I wonder how much of this is accurate. Um it, but it is interesting to to notice those things. Um, and one of the things that um, I picked up on was you mentioned earlier, you, you had a, a quote about the, the horse um, metaphor yeah, that he yeah. uses. So he brings that in a little bit earlier where he asks Meletus, um, and I'll just go ahead and read my quote from that. He says, yeah. would you say that this also holds true in the case of horses? Does one man do them harm and all the world good? Is not the opposite of this true? Happy indeed would be the condition of youth if they had one corrupter only and all the rest of the world were their improvers. Here he's showing a comparison between uh, horses, animals in general, to humans. Right. But then he instead of like developing that idea more, he just goes and like directly attacks like Melitus and saying, you're wrong. You don't even care about the youth. Right. So everything else was just so well structured. And then at this point, when he kind of brings in uh, the horse metaphor, I was just kind of like, what? I had to Mm -hmm. reread that a couple of times because I I was just like, how does this tie to anything? I know that he's making a comparison, but, and he's trying to say, like, oh, even with horses, all animals, including humans, it's not that they're everybody is good to them and there's just this one corrupter, which is what he's saying Melitus is accusing him of. Right, being, yeah, being the sole the negative sole influence or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But, and he's saying, but that's not possible because the way that humans interact with uh, the horses is actually, it's more like there's several corruptors and usually just like the one good. Yeah, yeah. 
and yeah. it, it's common to his style, as far as my memory goes, in, in the Plato and Socratic dialogues and stuff, that to not only use analogies, but very extended ones as well. Like right. Really long form ones that they use as the, kind of their core of their logic. Um, and it, it comes up in the Republic. And the, I mean, you could also call, I mean, the allegory of the cave is an allegory, but in a way, it's just an extended comparison as well. I mean, you can call comparisons of different things and different titles, but it's really just a really long example narrated comparison right. um, between human intelligence or human knowledge and, you know, this cave thing. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's, it's really common in his style. You also pulled in the quote too, it's noteworthy that it's just a series of like simple rhetorical questions in a way, which is yeah. kind of like the Socratic way. Mm-hmm. Did, so would you say you have, I don't know, would you say you found a meaning in the horse analogy then in the end? <sighs> Uh, not really. I with the gadfly, and I, I think maybe he was just trying to say because, like, horse the horse was um, even in that culture, I believe, seen as like a noble creature, right? Uh, but also um, one that is useful to the society at a time. I think he was trying to show a direct correlation to the idea that maybe he himself is uh, just trying to be useful, and that he is the one who's um, right. Uh, being um, used badly by the Senate and by Melitus and, and his other accusers right. and stuff. But, but I, I don't know. I feel like that that's me just like as somebody who is enjoys studying literature, I'm like, this is a speech that's supposed to be off mm-hmm. the cuff. So how much of that is actually, was it, how much of that was actually an intent and how much of that was just by chance. So I, I struggle yeah. with that because I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to like discredit him and say that he was just, you know, throwing stuff out there, you know, whatever. But at the same time, I don't want to say that, oh, I'm, I'm sure that this is what he meant by this and and fall into the trap of uh, what was the name of the author? Hardy, the the one that where we were reading the figure in the carpet. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The, yes, I was thinking I thought you were thinking of Thomas Hardy, which I think we've covered on the pod. But no, yeah. from the figure in the carpet. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to, I mean, but I think though, well, here's, I'm going to transition your quote into my last one then briefly. I think it, I think there is an interpretation that holds up within the context of this work and also not to get too outside the text, but his other works too. And that it's, it it hints at a type of elitism because as he brings up in the horse analogy, like the horse expert, how there are a few people truly meant to be horse masters. It's basically, there's more people who can ruin a horse than make it good. Right. And so it gets to an elitism that comes through in his politics. And on 35, he makes it pretty clear. Um, he says, don't be annoyed with me for telling the truth. There isn't anyone in the world who will survive if he genuinely opposes you or any other popular majority and tries to prevent widespread injustice and lawlessness from occurring in the city. Anyone who's really fighting for justice must live as a private citizen and not as a public figure if he's going to survive even a short time. And it's a kind of disappointing pessimism, especially if you come in expecting the Athenians as like as famous as Socrates to all be pro democracy because he really was not. And that becomes clear in the Republic as well. Mm-hmm. He has this idea of these philosopher Kings and that again, it's complicated. The, the Republic spends uh, perhaps a hundred pages on that concept or it's, you know, there's, it's dense, but it, it is essentially elitist. He believes in expertise and he believes that limited people have true knowledge, true wisdom, and then their thereby true ability to kind of rule and, like offer insight and like genuinely lead people. 
-hmm. again, things for another time. This isn't a podcast about the Republic. Um, that podcast would be would not be one episode. Lord knows it would. <laughs> there's like entire courses designed around that work. You know, exactly. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty dense. Um, but I think no. But I think the horse one, and then between that and then that quote I just read about his views of the his views on um his views on just public life and public service and by you know association democracy and stuff. He seems very pessimistic about it all. That people, when you when you get into the arena of public life, you're just going to get corrupted or blinded, and so it takes you know an outsider like him to evoke or truth or find truth or something. And so no, I think the horse one. I think that those tie well together. It, it hints at his elitism. Yeah, and actually, that the quote that you pulled is is great to make another connection to today in that our distrust of our political leaders is mm -hmm. yeah is very strong even today where we believe that yeah we vote these leaders in hoping for change but the change often is initiated not by our leaders but by um citizens by common citizens by right. private citizens right. uh who who take those first steps towards making a change yeah i think socrates like many like a more founding fathers than people realize i think were actually pretty wary of um like crowds or dominant majorities or kind of groupthink, I guess is the the term we would probably yeah. put on that now. A term that neither of them had. Socrates missed that term by over two thousand years, but <laughs> as a psychological yeah. concept or whatever. But um, yeah, I think more more foundational again Western quote unquote thinkers have a skepticism of that than people realize, especially since that that tradition has ended up like kind of upholding democracy and like being foundational to democratic ideals and governance there's more doubt mm -hmm. within that than i think people understand this yeah. uh, speech then is kind of a great gateway to like he he just hints at those ideas again the quote i read is about as explicit as he gets i don't think he does anything more here he's also trying to defend himself from being killed so he's got right. urgent <laughs> pressing matters to to attend to um <laughs> let's jump to the let's jump to the literary corner. This is the educational segment of the pod where we try and get in some kind of academic light academic thought or try and teach a simple concept if we can. Do you want to start off, Amanda? You picked one that um, made my ears perk up and tingle, I guess I could say as a former teacher. Yeah. So the one that I chose was uh, the Socratic method, mm -hmm. obviously named yeah. after Socrates. Um, and it's, I suppose, uh, less literary and more pedagogical. Yeah. But yeah. it's the, it's how we as especially like as English teachers, but you know, uh, any hu humanities teacher, uh, is kind of encouraged to use the Socratic method nowadays, right. where um, instead of just rote memorization, you're actually asking questions and you're getting your students to also ask questions. And it's all yep. about uh, developing critical thinking through questioning rather than just lecture. And that's the right. big difference is lecture versus discussion. Yeah. So, and I, and I, and this is definitely it. <laughs> I, you know, the college I attended and the classes I took um, were discussion I would say light, but it, it was enough of a part of the curricula that I, I really came to love it when I taught. I certainly took many infinite seeming swings at Socratic style discussions in, in infinite formats and with endless variations and combinations of things. And I don't, I'm not sure if I ever felt fully satisfied, but also I think that's because my brain had been twisted and corrupted by like standardized test type thinking where it's kind of like, what yeah. clear objective would do we just accomplish? You know, it's like, and I had some written down of, you know, things to look for and I had a grading system and like a rubric that I could apply. And so, 
you know, I tried to shove those, those maybe incompatible things together. And I, I don't know if I was ever satisfied with the outcome. I, some of my favorite moments in teaching though, happened during those kind of seminars. Um, yeah. I don't know if you agreed with that or if you felt that to be true too. It's, well, I taught in two very different uh, types of schools where I was right. teaching in Korea for a couple of years and it was, uh, and the, I had a variety of classes, one of which was um, English as a second language, right? So I was teaching them how to speak and yeah, right. how to listen and hear and how to write. And then the other one, which was with my more advanced students, we actually did do some like literature and, and talking about poetry and culture, which was a lot of fun. For sure. But th yeah. with those questions where it wasn't just about like, you need to learn the grammar and you need to learn um, the pronunciation, but with the ones where we could actually discuss literature and stuff, that was, we used the questions and and just like exploratory language and the discussions that was that was my favorite class i absolutely loved it and yeah, the questions yeah. that they come up with especially since they came from a completely different culture and were reading english books it was it was really great because not only were they learning but i also was learning more about their culture and their insights as well which is what i really loved yeah that's great maybe that's the that would be the to steal another term the like platonic ideal of what that could look like then but right. yeah, there's a certain barrier you have to get over. I remember when I would, the one thing I settled on in the later years when I was teaching w in regards to like Socratic discussion was kind of setting up these tiered. And I, I tried this with like a, doing it around a point system or like making a menu. And yeah, again, you try a million things. But the one thing I settled on was like, you have to teach them that there are different levels of questioning, essentially, like between comprehension right. versus like analytical and synthesis. And like, you just have to try and introduce the idea i don't know i was doing it with middle schoolers which you definitely can start doing but you just have to try and mm -hmm. introduce the idea that, that when we say questioning it's not like what did he say right it's why did he say it that way or what does it mean or how did how does that i don't know fit right. with your reality I, you, there's just like you can come up with these different levels of questioning and i i think if you're teaching in the socratic method that's kind of essential in my mind so you don't just end up right ping-ponging, you know, these basic questions back and forth. And I think that that becomes kind of one of the damning things against it in the, if you're teaching in the Socratic way. I pulled the term yeah. that's very related, if not kind of the same thing with a twist, which was Socratic irony. This is from the Penguin like Literary Dictionary, which is a term so-called after Socrates, whose favorite device was to uh, simulate ignorance in, simulate, maybe stimulate? No, simulate ignorance in discussion, mm -hmm. especially by asking a series of apparently innocuous questions in order to trap his interlocutor in, into error, which I think the thing that stuck out to me this time is how we've adopted this term that Socrates did such a poor job of in this, like, he only asks leading questions. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. I don't, I didn't remember this about it. It's, and again, we've basically institutionalized his type of thinking. And I, I all I could help but couldn't help but think while reading it was like, did we do that incorrectly? Like, does he deserve the title? Because every question he asks is just designed to trap someone into a conclusion, not to actually understand their thinking. Or I guess, you know, he is understanding their thinking because he gets them to agree with him or disagree with him. But each time it's rhetorical, it's to his ends. You know, it's like he never actually asks an exactly. open-ended question. <laughs> like it's in, yep. and in Socratic seminar, like in the way, again, pedagogically people have done this, that would be like a disaster. Like if, if your class yeah. is only asking each other leading questions like he does here, it was like staggering to me to see how, you know, again, coming off the the pedagogy side being like, this is t going terribly. Like if this was the way yeah, it was happening yeah. in my class, I would be so disappointed and would like shut it down and just have to be like, wait, wait, we're not getting, you're not getting this at all. And so right. the heavy handedness of it was 
kind of odd. It felt almost contrived. I mean, it, it to me, I guess we can get back to this. It felt literary or rhetorical, which I think then if you read right. it as that, if you read his work as that, then it's like, okay, yeah, he's doing rhetorical questions and kind of pushing the, you know, he's just doing his argumentation that way. And th- in that way it works. But coming mm-hmm. from the ed- educational side, like you mentioned, I think it, it felt like bizarrely uh, terrible to, to me uh, from that angle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, the other quote that I had pulled earlier was actually from the questioning of Melitus, where I, I, was focused on the logical progression of Socrates's mm-hmm. uh, questioning of Melitus, where he asks him a yes or no question. And then he, and of course he knows what the answer is going to be. Right. Yeah. And so then he pulls yeah. that and twists it with, with logic to be like, Oh, see, you are, you're a liar. And I'm the truth sayer right, here. Like right. you're, <laughs> you're the one that's corrupting people. Not me. And <laughs> like, most notably yeah. Melitus is not allowed to, to retort. So in terms of like, that's the other thing. I feel like mm-hmm. Socratic discussion often gets associated with like healthy debate. Like, oh, this is a healthy right. way for people to work out differences of opinion. And it's like, no, man, that there's no differences in this. It's just Socrates just dunking on this guy and like guiding him <laughs> yeah. into traps over and over again. That's all yeah. this is. And so it's so strange that we associate those things. Um, this is obviously a limited slice. I can't, this is funny though, because when I was thinking back and reading this, thinking back in the Republic, that's my memory of the Republic though too, is that it's a lot of, you know, when people interject into his dialogues, it's just for them to say yes or no. That's it. They're just like, right. they're, he's just there using them as kind of like a guidepost to like bump up against mm-hmm. or whatever to see how his thinking is progressing. Uh, you know, like a quick mm-hmm. pull the audience or something. So it felt very odd to read. But again, as a literary construction, you, it kind of feels smooth um, as a genuine like uh indicator of hearty discussion it was like disastrous <laughs> i think it was yeah, so strange yeah. <laughs> uh to encounter it again after all these years um let's move to the review then we have a two-parter here we like to start with something good about it this is the russell french in memoriam what's good about it segment uh, amanda what was one genuinely good thing about uh socrates defense Um, I was impressed with how Socrates um, said, well, he said that he was speaking off the cuff, but his rhetoric, right, is, is very evident. And, and if he really were, if he was actually speaking off the cuff, then like, wow, what an amazing speaker. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) He's, wow, just amazing. Uh, So I thought that his rhetoric was uh, really interesting and thought provoking. Um. Yeah, that that would be my, and what mine I lined up it. too. It's you can learn a lot in this very slim volume. You know, mine was like fifty-five pages, like the usual Penguin little classics mm-hmm. are. But you can learn so much about rhetoric and construction of argumentation in the in just this brief one. There's so many. I mean, we've touched on a couple, and there's ones we definitely left out. Yeah, and I think that's why Plato has held up in the in the academic world for so long now. Like, you know, thousands of years, perhaps. I think it's you mm-hmm. know other than maybe people being stubborn about letting go of some classics or redefining a canon or whatever but reading this it did feel worthy because it felt like the way we understand rhetoric and the theories that have sprouted up since then of which there are just infinite or many it just felt like you could pull so many tricks from this one and they're in in such a dense volume you can learn so much and so i admired that about it a lot granted you would need i think if you went into this blind you wouldn't notice all of them but hey that lends itself Mm -hmm. to rereading then so it's kind of you come away learning these tricks are almost these like rhetorical spells of a sort uh, let's jump to the ratings then. Again, we'll start with you, Amanda. What is the rating then? One being do not read this, two being maybe read this, a qualified recommendation, and three being you should definitely go read this. What do you think? I would say a two. Um, yeah. I didn't give it a three uh, 
just because I don't think that everybody would absolutely love this because yeah, some people, yeah. they just don't care about um, rhetoric. They don't care about that. It does not have a plot, right? It's not a novel. It's of a course. speech. Yep. Um, and, and and it's not like you're wondering what happens in the end either because we all know what happens. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he is not successful, people. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so if you're looking for something where it's just, purely entertainment i don't think that this is going to be it for you right, right. but if you're looking for something that is thought provoking and you you like to see like um little like his his roundabout his logical conclusions and things like that if you are interested in how uh he develops his logic then i think that this would be an interesting read yeah. um especially yeah. especially the way that he takes down Melitus in particular uh, mm-hmm. I think that that part for me was entertaining. And, and if you're interested, I think that's the most interesting part of the read. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm going to bump to three. I did my normal ambivalent thing where I kind of put down two numbers here. I yeah. think I'm going to commit to three though, for a few reasons though. Everything you said, I think is perfectly, perfectly encapsulates kind of just the gist of kind of philosophy in a way. And like what, why it can be mm-hmm. difficult to approach I, the, the brevity yeah. here but also contrast that with like kind of the potency of some of it and how much, again, just how much like Western thought and philosophy tradition it can reveal in such a short time. I think if you just cut out the allegory of the cave from the Republic and then put this with that and just like gave it to someone as like, here's your intro to philosophy, like starter book, let's get some conversation going. I feel like that's such yeah. a, per- it would perfectly capture so many different things. It just leaves so many places to get into rhetoric and philosophy and ideas around thinking and so to me i think i think it's a three for that reason mostly because of its brevity and just the depth of thought that it could at least stir in someone it kind of can begin their i guess in a fitting way it can begin their lines of questioning and kind of get them on a path to asking new and different questions this is also i mean i firmly believed coming out of college like how are how are high schools not at least doing a little bit of philosophy like i think Right. I guess it's I can see why it's been kind of cordoned off to the to colleges and considered like a higher form of more difficult form of academia. And I kind of get that. But at the same time, I think if you chose the right texts, you definitely could do it. And I think it would be very fruitful to do it in high school. This being this just stood out as like, oh, yeah, this could be it could be done with this. This in combination with some other snippets of Plato could be such a great starter. So I think I'm going to go full three, especially. And it's weird. It's a contrast to yours. I'm I'm targeting the three at someone who has has no interest in philosophy and maybe no exposure. It's like, well, try this at least. I mean, at least give yourself the fifty five page little intro and then see how it strikes you. I will say to to your point that um, it is a good piece as far as not being overly verbose. Yeah, either. you're yeah. not going to have you know, crazy words thrown in there. Like some philosophy is just, it drags on because yeah. it's redefining and creating new words. Whereas this all one, it is yeah. just, yeah, is you're already, you already know all these words. It's not, right. it's not like you're going to struggle with the language. So that is to your point. I think that that is a good, yeah. To put it um, in a more targeted, aggressive way, it's not German, right. which like that, yeah. that stuff really, <laughs> I mean, there are exceptions, right? My brother and I reviewed in this for this collection. We reviewed Nietzsche forever ago. Now it was like the tenth episode or something, and we loved it. I mean, because his whole thing is to write these short aphorisms or maxims and keep it really brief and punchy, and so it was mm-hmm. great, very readable. But no, I mean, you get into some some dense uh, Hegel or um, oh gosh, who's the 
Oh, see, now I'm starting to forget the names. But anyway, the German, Germany, for whatever reason, societally has contributed a lot to philosophy and the development of those and French, uh, the French mm-hmm. have as well. And some of that stuff just gets brutal to read. Really, like you said, it's so much of it is is taking terms and kind of bending and twisting them. And then that mm-hmm. leads to the invention of new subterms, and it just becomes right. Um, Capitalized words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just it, the snake ends up eating its tail. It feels like, and it's yeah. just kind of exhausting to be part of that. This again just stands out then for its clarity of thought, and I don't know the language mm-hmm. was very accessible. I, I agree with you. Um, and there are creative ideas in there and lots to unpack, but no, it, it's accessible at a level. I feel yeah, I feel good about going with three then. And my to be clear, my personal rereading of this, like I didn't feel like a three when I was reading. I didn't feel like I have to consume this. This is incredible. Like the writing, the idea, like it all just mm-hmm. felt kind of like a, a nice little satisfying hum uh but i think yeah as a recommendation based show i don't know i feel strongly people should try this especially if you have no exposure so nice i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna go with the three should go read this any final thoughts on socrates or plato before we conclude amanda any grand insights you want to offer uh in the history of the western canon etc etc oh wow no, no big ending uh, i am <laughs> yeah i i am not well versed enough for that so <laughs> okay well then let's go get our copies of the republic off the shelf un-de-dust them yeah. what's the opposite of yeah. i guess just dust them dust them off i was yeah. trying to think we of like to, we would have to dust them off who's yeah. just treating the <laughs> verb dust like it meant to put dust on something i was trying to think of the, the uh, re-dust them i don't know whatever uh get the dust off of those bad boys uh, next week, we can look forward to some poetry. I believe Goblin Market is the name of the collection. I have no clue of the yeah. author of the collection. Rossetti. There we go. Okay. Christina Rossetti. Come don't, on. Don't know Christina Rossetti <laughs> at all. So I, you, there's a chance you might join us on that one, though I know poetry can be tough because you know you have to search the corners of the internet to find that stuff. If not, then I'll be here. Maybe Ryan will join in, but we'll see who who can find these poems by next week. Um, and like we mentioned at the very beginning, look out for future book club episodes featuring African-American literature. That is a definite goal of ours for the remainder of the year, at least. And so we're going to try and feature some things. And yeah, I think Underground Railroad next month is pretty much a guarantee at this point. I just pulled my copy off the shelf. So we're heading in that direction. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm quite excited. And that seems like a worthwhile ongoing project and We'll contribute what we can, as we talked about on the Coates episode. Which you haven't listened to that, then yeah, go check that out. We got a book club on on that Coates work, which was great. Um, thanks for listening, as usual. And until next week's poetry selections, we will see you between the classics. <laughs> <laughs>